Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills into shadow. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. How did it come to this? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin. Today's episode is... Uh, I don't really know what today's episode is. Uh, we are going to sit here and kind of talk about how we're feeling two-thirds of our way through our coverage of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Holy shit. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, guess not this one, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. God help us. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Good start. Uh, oh, uh, so, Emily, we have covered two out of the three Lord of the Rings films, which I think would be our main mission of this podcast. Uh, how you doing? How you feeling? Yeah. I mean, it's such a weird question because I feel like I was, um, like, in the kind of weeks leading up to this, I've been, like, occasionally sitting around with the notebook that I keep my notes for this podcast and being like, okay, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about this? How do I feel about this? Like, a total fucking lunatic. Um, and I think one of the things that's kind of funny is, like, um, is to be thinking back on those kind of early episodes on like kind of just digging into fellowship of the ring for the first time was like how um how kind of desperate i was to have like a grand theory of the lord of the rings adaptations the book and the movie and how like instead of getting closer to creating drafting that theory what i've just kind of done is embrace the fucking chaos and instead of being like, okay, how how to make Lord of the Rings adaptations perfection make sense with Lord of the Rings book perfection, I'm instead like, well, what if everything else just sucks and these are the only good things like alive? Like, what if the culture industry right now is just like a zombie apocalypse? And the to reference my new favorite thing to hate right now, uh, maybe the Lord of the Rings books and movies are just like the Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey of it all. Um, so maybe embracing the nihilism, embracing the chaos is where I'm at, which is probably a massively more pessimistic, um, approach to it than, than yours, which I'm sure is very optimistic and lovely. Yeah. Um, I have also embraced the chaos, <laughs> but, um, in a non-offensive way, you are that chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know we talked about on our first Patreon episode how I did kind of uh, float this uh, podcast by a couple of my other friends, and I would say those friends were would be more like me, just generally up on the movies and more movie people than, let's say, uh, concerned with the book and the adaptation of it. Um, so very early on, I had to have my uh, Bayesian priors challenged on <laughs> what I thought was good about these movies. Um, I had to um, actually just... Instead of going on the ipso facto, this is all great, I had to really start thinking about why I like this when you start challenging me with your uh, takes on Aragorn and Gandalf, <laughs> um, because those are characters. To be fair, uh, these are the way the movies present them as characters to just generally be fans of and root for and like. Um, I think all three of those would apply to movie Aragorn and movie Gandalf. Yep. Um 
So uh, really having to think about it. And it is one of those things where um, I love the books, but the books have not been a part of my life as much as the movies have. Um, so really trying to take it back to the source text to understand the concept of adaptation. It's a skill I really worked on when I was covering Game of Thrones. But now to come back to something where I had the whole film present film adaptation presented to me and then working backwards to the source text instead of the other way around. Um, it's been a, a real challenge in a good way. Like I've enjoyed doing that kind of work. The one thing I will say is I am kind of surprised that I also haven't come up with like a grand theory of everything about these movies yep. yet. Um, one thing uh, in our Metal Gear Solid podcast, me and Brian kind of by the end of covering the first game, we kind of like, oh, these are kind of the running thematic points we want to take into covering every other game. And we were able to really refine a thesis so that when we covered the last Metal Gear Solid game, it felt like we were like really wrapping a bow around the gift that was our podcast, <laughs> which sounds very high handed, <laughs> but like it really felt like we built to a climax in itself. Like we laid out the case as we went through every game and then we were able to punctuate that with the last game. Um, and some of that's just, you know, how good those games are in terms of being thematically crafted coherently. Um, and I'm not saying that the Lord of the Rings isn't, but it's just been, I feel like so much more scattershot in our analysis yeah. and not in a bad way. It just feels like, I think taking these movies on scene by scene so we can talk about influences and choices by scene rather than by movie or just as an adaptation overall really helps kind of flesh out some of the detail. It doesn't lead to some greater meaning or understanding, but it allows us to dig deeper than I thought we would otherwise. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think there's this kind of funny thing where like, you know, I, I go through um, phases on this next sentence um, here, but like I, I think like dealing with the Lord of the Rings in some ways is really difficult. Um, dealing with the Lord of the Rings movies, um, because because of basically this issue of like they are the best that m movies they are the best that movies have ever been. They are cinema TM, um, but as much as that is true, they are also like you know, Rise of Skywalker way, they are all the Jedi, they are all the, like, shitty, awful things that came later. And it's kind of interesting because, like, um, there is this real kind of conflict between, like, the things in Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings movies that are just utterly, like, unimpeachably brilliant, and then the things that represent, like, these seeds of the bad times to come. I don't know how many meta mixed metaphors I'm going to shove into a single sentence here. <laughs> but, like, you know, it, it's, like, how how do we deal with the fact that, like, you know, the Lord of the Rings are a perfect trilogy of movies, but like the inability to stick the landings, like some of the like excess um, that, you know, begins to creep its way in, um, in, in these movies and then just goes all, you know, whole hog in The Hobbits. Like that had like a very clear influence on, on the rest of the cinema industry. And like, how do you balance that? And like, you know, it's the same question with like the, the books, the Tolkien books where like, you know, I love the Legendarium. I love I love all of these books. I think, you know, they really do just capture my imagination in, in a way that nothing else does. But like, you know, who else has their imagination captured by the Legendarium? The fucking Nazis. Um, and so it's like, you know, how do you balance these two things? Like loving these things, but also having like these like criticisms of them. And I think we've also been like both incredibly fortunate and incredibly unfortunate to be in like to be able to cover these movies like in the midst of both 
the Rings of Power um, boo track here, uh, and then Andor uh, cheer applause track here. Because um, I feel like those two also represent the kind of like highs and lows of like modern culture, modern movies, modern TV, and and also kind of take a lot or are responding, maybe not directly in the case of Andor, but like are responding indirectly to things that like the Lord of the Rings as a movie series kicked off in in the the culture industry. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because you can really tell there's a change in our tone when we recorded Lord of the Rings episodes (laughs) during the Rings of Power versus when we recorded a couple during Andor. Um, Yeah, it's like one of my like, you know, catchphrases on here is the Lord of the Rings being an inflection point of cinema between the old school and the new school. And that necessarily implies that it kind of led to some of the garbage we see today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think where I'm more forgiving about Lord of the Rings, like say with the Asgiliath ending at the end of two towers, um, I know that's working under certain constraints that, you know, they have a certain amount of time with a three hour movie that they have so much attention. They can split between multiple things. It's like, okay, yeah, that sucks. Um, but then you go and see like, what if we made an entire television series out of the Osgilia <laughs> scene at the end of this? And that's what the rings of power or something like Falcon and the winter soldier is like something that's like, five minutes that you can kind of condense into something decent in the middle of a bigger Captain America movie. Um, And then once you kind of just take that bit and then try to flesh it out into six to eight episodes, it's just like, ooh, (laughs) there isn't a lot of meat on this bone or the meat that they put on the bone is rancid. Uh, I guess you don't put meat on a bone, but um, I guess we're both having trouble with our metaphors today. Um, but, But it is. It is kind of interesting to see how our analysis has been reflective of the other media we're talking about um because i'm sure like some of our most positive two towers episodes was when i was bitching about kenobi um (laughs) in the middle of last summer because i'm like i'm watching this dog shit every week and then i come back and watch 10 minutes in the dead marshes or something like that i'm like this is the best thing i've ever seen on screen uh and then you know actually having that kind of dulled a little bit during andor where it's like we covered the wolves of Isengard during Andor, and I'm like, I still love, you know, Legolas jumping on the horse and some of the battle sequences therein. Um, but it's definitely you can see like, oh, this is clearly writing that's meant to pad stuff out a little bit. Whereas everything in Andor that we were covering at the time was very much tightly tuned, everything kind of mattered. And I don't need everything to have that like breaking bad style precision, <laughs> but you can really tell like fat versus just like streamlined narrative when doing those two episodes back to back. Yeah. Uh, see, I think there's also something kind of interesting here, like with the, you know, I, maybe there's like a, a recency bias element, not in terms of like being biased in favor of, but like being strongly biased against like a lot of this stuff. And, you know, like I certainly have a tendency to just be like, oh, it's all shit. Everything is shit. And, and, and not really be maybe as generous as I ought to be with like things that come out now. Although I will, I will now uh, hubristically um, caveat that by saying, um, if uh, movies that came out thirty years ago had the budgets they have now, then we'd probably be seeing massively better movies. Um, we would have seen massively better movies um, than the fucking dog shit we've got now. So, like, maybe that is fair in some ways. But, but I think there's like you know a tendency to be like either the things that um are 20 30 years old are better just from pure nostalgia goggles and things that are current are just dog shit through like recency anti-bias i guess um but i I think there's something kind of interesting with 
the Lord of the Rings, I guess, at least for me, because, you know, it's not really a nostalgia thing for me. I've only been into this shit for like four years now and three or four <laughs> years now. Um, and so it doesn't feel like nostalgia in, in that same way. Um, but I think there's also like a, a, a kind of element to which like the Lord of the Rings um, doesn't sit in that kind of older like those older movies for me, like, you know, I, I guess I have a bit of nostalgia around like Star Wars because I first watched it when I was six. But like those movies predated me, like the original trilogy predated mm -hmm. me by like 22 years. Um, I think Jesus. I did that math right. Uh, tw no, 21 years. Um, so like, you know, I wasn't I couldn't possibly be nostalgic for 1977. Um, but like the Lord of the Rings doesn't feel like it is of a piece with those movies that era of like the big kind of new hollywood blockbuster it feels like the start of the new era um and so i kind of wonder like as we work through these if the, if the, it is almost more fair to compare everything to the lord of the rings um all the new stuff that we're watching now than it is to compare it to like you know it, i think it would be unreasonable to compare uh you know with the rings of power to uh star wars the original trilogy star wars because like those are two very different directorial styles whereas like i think the kind of content strategy <laughs> of the lord of the rings is very similar to the content strategy of <laughs> the rings of power or um kenobi or the mandalorian A and so it is almost more interesting to me that the lord of the rings is so good and everything else sucks so much ass because they are directly comparable those are the two apples they are not apples and oranges if, if that makes sense oh i think it does and i think a lot of it as we've kind of talked about as we've covered these movies is that there's a difference for from like when they're using certain techniques as cost cutting versus like, oh, this is the only way we could possibly do this because we can't do it all in computers just yet. Um, and I think that kind of really shows itself because there are times, and I think us Gilead is a great place where we can say they're obviously saving a little bit here um, and not trying to fuss too much so that they have room elsewhere. Um, whereas kind of like those cost cutting techniques became the way things are just made now. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, yeah, we'll just green screen all this. <laughs> um, we won't get like unionized craftspeople and we'll just go to party city um, and just buy whatever, you know, elf costume they have. That's not even Lord of the Rings uh, specific. <laughs> uh, so um, it, I think that's been something that's been one of the things that I've really been able to like chew on more than I ever have before is because even though I watched behind the scenes stuff and all the DVD extras, the appendices as they're called in the extended edition DVDs. Um, I wasn't like, I don't think class consciousness is the word. It's just like, I didn't have my ideological underpinnings like 15 years ago that I do now. Yeah. So also being able to look at this through um, labor, like both labor as it was in the film industry in the two thousands. And then what, you know, the VFX and craftspeople are dealing with right now, the IATSE, all that kind of stuff, um, and really examining how the labor situation got to where it is now from where it was then, how Lord of the Rings either played a part in that or kind of bucked the trend or was, you know, reminiscent of a different age when we did things just a little bit differently. Um, I don't want to praise it, nor do I want to condemn it. Um, it's more just, it's very interesting to see that. I will absolutely condemn the current labor industry, especially the VFX situation mm -hmm. with a lot of movie making. But I think being able to dive into that has been something I'd never really did ever before. Um, our podcast together. So this is actually an interesting question for me, but like, 
Um, have you gone back to, you know, like, are there any movies in particular that you've gone back to since starting this podcast where you've been like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking totally differently about this now. Like either I'm way more favorable about this than I was, or like, I'm way more down on this than I was. And like, that is directly attributable to like thinking, (laughs) thinking this hard about the Lord of the Rings. I think there is. But I don't know if it's genuine. Um, What I'm trying to say is, um, I hate just referencing tweets on this podcast, but there was one where it's just like, now every time I watch just like a medium budget thriller from the 90s, I'm just super impressed that it's all shot on set. (laughs) And like they're using actual props and costumes aren't CGI'd onto bodies after the fact and everything's lit well and the sound design is all pretty good. Even if it's like a two and a half star movie that's just boring plot wise, I'm like, oh, someone actually cared to put the work to make this look like a fucking movie uh, and not a video game or something. And I think... I think this podcast has helped that, but I think um, I might also have gotten there without it. Um, And I also don't think like my overall opinion of movie, like individual movies has changed as much. I tend to be very stubborn, like the Taurus that I am. Um, (laughs) I tend to only love things more with time. I don't tend to like age out or like grow less into stuff over time. But I think movies overall, I kind of think about more fondly because of the work we've done on this podcast. Nice. Movies of a time that that's what to say. Yeah, no, I got you. And um, yeah, cause, cause it's kind of interesting for me because like, I think I'm a lot less forgiving of things now because I'm like, because there's this, I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like aggressively. So, um, because I think there's like, for me, you know, it, on you know watches one through ten of the lord of the rings um it's like okay wow this is amazing this is mind blowing stuff but then like watches 200 and 300 and dissecting scene number 30 like it's always this moment of like oh my god so much thought went into every part of this scene like you can feel the like uh, you know, it, it, when you see the Rohirrim, right? Like for for the first time um, in in Edoras, well, I guess ostensibly um, out in the Westfold with Amber. But when when you see Edoras for the first time, um, and and you see and the camera sort of pans up the hill, the Edinburgh like hill, Edinburgh Castle like hill, <laughs> um, you can you can see how much like how many hands went into building every single part of that shot, like not just literally holding the camera or moving the camera and and getting the actors to where they are, but like how much handiwork went into all of the costumes, the set design, how much thought went into that. And and it's so clear that it's like a uh, a team, a production team of hundreds um, that was involved in that. And, and so like then when I look at things like um, my current favorite punching bag, The Last of Us, which I thought was atrocious, um, you know, there are like shots in there where, you know, uh, uh, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are like in the same ramshackle looking shithole they've been in for the last three episodes, except this one is in a different city from the previous episode, which was in a different city from the previous episode. And it looks exactly the same. And like, you know, there's a bit where they're in like Salt Lake City, Utah, and like Salt Lake City, Utah, and this show looks exactly like Boston in the show. And Boston looks exactly like all of the other cities. And I'm like, I sit there and watch it. And I'm like, you know what, like for all of the like their faults, um, Peter Jackson's team, like, wouldn't have let that happen. Like, I, I think there are serious flaws with Gondor and how it's portrayed and how, like, frankly, milk toast it's portrayed. But, like, 
they would not have allowed that to happen. There was some serious thought that went into every part of the production design for it. Um, and there would not have been that sort of needless blending of of um, setting or of like characterizations or of costumes. And, and I think it makes it harder because I'm like, you know, I have so many critiques of Peter Jackson. And so like, if I think like some of these things are super boneheaded, then everything else is like, holy shit, guys, like, what the fuck were you doing for the year long production schedule that you had? Like, what was it? Or are you just blowing all of your cash on like Coke and hookers? I kind of hope you were because otherwise I don't know where this money is going. Is this a producer's type scenario? Um, I, I think it's just like made me kind of simultaneously like less forgiving of the Lord of the Rings movies and less forgiving of everything else as well but like also more forgiving <laughs> of the lord of the rings movies because of like well in contrast my god this was written th these were directed by god himself <laughs> oh uh i didn't know george miller directed these but, uh, <laughs> okay that's a joke for people oh, who follow god. hideo kojima <laughs> on twitter uh anyways uh yeah no i think i i think i get that even though i am not that um i am definitely just forgiving of these movies in every possible way uh and i don't really mind being that way and i feel like that forgiveness has only aged better with time um as we get further and further down the content slop cycle uh yeah uh so uh since we started this podcast um this is gonna be a tough one for you have you thought about or have you changed how you think about any of this or has there been anything that you specifically learned doing this podcast um yes and i think the kind of first one is um i think i used to feel very strongly that the two towers was my favorite of the movies and i think instead i've regressed not regressed but like evolved to fellowship of the ring is by far the best um of the movies. And I think I've also gone from thinking that like all books are in some way adaptable to the screen and instead changed to being like, no, there's no chance. Like, like a lot of things, you know, I don't think the Lord of the Rings is an example of one that can't be adapted, but I think there are like now having thought so much about like how the, these adaptations work and like why these changes were made. Um, it, it makes me feel like, um, a, there is such a clear di distinction between like writing, you know, books as as a medium, and then uh, cinema as a medium, and like where I thought there were kind of um, reconcilable differences between the two. I think, in fact, there are like irreconcilable differences between the two, um, and that line feels like a lot harder to me than I think I had initially anticipated. So, like, where I think I may have originally been much harder on the. Fail the films, Lord of the Rings films, it was coming from a place of like, oh, because it would have been possible to have adapted this right. And now I think I'm a bit more, slightly, not massively more, but slightly more relaxed on the basis of, I don't think anything, like anybody or anything could have done this exactly right in, in exactly the right way. I just don't think it's like within movies, like kind of toolbox vernacular that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that kind of changes a lot of the like how... Um, I feel in particular about like choices in the back half of Two Towers and then the back half of Return of the King because I've kind of been like, okay, well, it you can't do the book justice in in at all in this medium. So like then what about these choices in like a purely like cinema logic point of view? And then I'm a bit more like, oh god, <laughs> like maybe maybe these are not <laughs> as great as or like as justifiable as I was like 
once kind of able to argue myself around to um as before if if that makes any sense no it does and i think um that's kind of where i started leading on the defense where the purpose of making these movies is not just to adapt the lord of the rings yeah um it's also to make that uber fantasy movie um to just do stuff that like people have been trying to do on film for almost a century at that point um, and actually having the tools to do so. So sometimes it was less about we're going to adapt this chapter from J.R.R. Tolkien correctly and more like we want to create this kind of scope or scale in a fantasy setting with this kind of monster or this kind of set piece or this kind of cavalry charge. Um, that was something I started thinking about because, I mean, I don't want to be a broken record, but I just really didn't think about the books up until we started doing this podcast. Um, The the books were something that were fine and fun that I read like once every five to 10 years. And the movies were something I watched eight to 10 times a year. Uh, (laughs) There just wasn't really like, I know they're the same thing in terms of like one's adapting the other, but they're also just like so separate. And my journey to them because it started with the movies um, is so much different that I try not to get too hung up on the like dialectic between the two. Um, what else have I learned? Um, I've learned not to think of Gandalf and Aragorn and Galadriel as well as I do. Yeah. Um, it hasn't changed too much just because I haven't read anything else besides The Hobbit uh, in terms of the legendarium. And because I don't think the Rings of Power counts in my mind anymore, I have <laughs> nothing but the like six minutes of Kate Blanchett Galadriel to really go on. I'm just taking Emily's word on it. Um, and she could just be making up everything she ever said on this podcast, and I would I not am. be able to fact that check That is true. Her, so. I am. I, I figure. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is kind of, um, I don't know if I would say illuminating, but it has forced me to kind of rethink about some of the stuff. I think one of the coolest things is in our first episode, when you really made me think about Galadriel and Galadriel's prologue, uh, kind of reframing these three movies as being told from Galadriel's point of view or how she documented it in Valinor after the events of all <laughs> things and not how it's documented in the Red Book. Um, I thought that was like a really kind of cunning insight. Um, and now that's something I'm always going to think, whether I necessarily adapt that view or not is irrelevant. But every time I fire up, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring and uh what's it called uh she starts talking about how the world has changed and how it smells and stuff um i'll instantly be thinking about oh i can interpret these movies as being from her point of view and not like the objective camera that most movies present themselves as. <laughs> hell yeah see that's always really interesting to me because um i i think there's such a there are so many movies from i would say 20 years ago and earlier where narration and like the presence of a single kind of character point of view are integral to the telling of the story. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of faded away um, a, a lot. Uh, we, we were talking about this in one of our group chats recently where like um, uh, uh, Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies um, you know, they very clearly are geared towards and have the point of view of what would a six to 26 year old boy um, think is cool and think is awesome. And that is like in in order, cars, chicks um, and having superheroes and getting to own your bullies. And like, 
how ostensibly that should be like to anyone who's sort of politically conscious in any correct way um that should be like a point of view that is like totally odious and it should just make us go like oh god this movie sucks ass but like in fact it does the opposite because like by virtue of it so clearly having a a, a point of view and a, a a clearly distinguishable and like enumerable point of view it actually makes it all the more interesting and how like by comparison um so many um modern movies um the marvels in particular but but really just any of them are so um like well it's like what you call like the the sort of four quadrants storytelling and they're trying to appeal to everyone um but by trying to appeal to everyone they're actually like one not really appealing to anybody except for like people who just go to the movies um just out of sort of rote um physical memory um but but they also just don't like have anything that they're saying or any kind of point of view or anything that really makes their like story unique and I think it's so interesting that like the Lord of the Rings kind of does two of these things at once where it very clearly establishes a point of view from Galadriel's prologue in the beginning and then Frodo capping it off at the end. But in between, it kind of goes, it's not to say that it goes like four quadrants at all, but like it drops that. And I think a lot of the movies that have come since the Lord of the Rings have just not even bothered with those like setup and closing points of view at all except for like Baz Luhrmann's Gatsby <laughs> or any of Baz Luhrmann's stuff actually he always got has some narrator but like that kind of idea of like a, a a narrating character not just a main character but like a narrating character I feel like has really totally dropped off um or dropped out of like our kind of common movie parlance in so many ways it's just not a thing that factors into how people think about movies anymore yeah um this has nothing to do with anything but I just realized Sam Raimi including like uh, Toby Maguire voiceover narration is actually a way to adapt comic book thought bubbles. Yeah. Um, which is actually a good way to do that for the medium, which is really cool. Um, and I can't really think of too many uh, other comic book movies that do that. I'm sure there are, and I'm just kind of blanking on it. Um, I know Christopher Nolan tries to do them, but it usually ends Jesus. up to, you know, pulling out and it's Gary Oldman actually delivering it or some shit like that. Um, but uh, I'd, I always name the shittiest actor in every production. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, yeah, uh, I really don't have anything to add to that, but I really am reveling in that Sam Raimi revelation. It, it's um, fun because like, I think there's also like Sam Raimi took very clearly from the language of like, of how comic books are like, there's so much, you know, I, I, I was laughing over a bit where, and I think either Spider-Man one or two, he rescues a baby out of a burning building and then like hands it directly off to his mother. And like, there's no sort of sense of like, surely that baby should be treated for smoke inhalation because like, this is a comic book movie and a comic book, you would not see the fucking kid get handed off to like to the ambulance, to the paramedics <laughs> to get checked for inhalation. That baby would go directly to the mother. So the mother could be like, thank you, Spider-Man. And then they could move on to the next panel. And like Sam Raimi didn't bother with like the gritty realism because he was obviously doing a comic book movie. And the Lord of the Rings is really interesting because, like, although there are certain flourishes that, like, define fantasy as a genre, and they are, by and large, plot choices that can maybe cannot be, like, adapted as clearly into, like, a visual medium. And so Peter Jackson is having to do this really difficult job in the Lord of the Rings of establishing what the visual flourishes for 
fantasy as a genre are. Um, and so like whether or not he see succeeds or fails on, on each of those things is like a different question, but like it is interesting how much of a challenge and how like how how much more of it like how much more obvious it is of a challenge for Peter Jackson to have created these films because there was so much that wasn't like totally unprecedented, but that he was really having to put together for the first time um, without being able to kind of cleanly borrow from other things, as opposed to like things like the comic book movie, which like had precedents, but like, you know, maybe hadn't been always as successful um, as um, either the, you know, the 70s Supermans or the 2000s Spideys. And, and so like in, in those ways, like um, it is interesting to, to have to give Peter Jackson, I'm saying this through tears, um, more, more leeway than most other directors. Uh, I could hear the pain in your voice when you had to give it to Peter Jackson. It definitely comes across on mic. So just so you know, people are going to hear how much it hurts you to say that. Uh, before we look forward, uh, one quick question about what we've done so far. Is there any episode or moment or discussion or just scene that we covered that you really like or really proud of that you think is your favorite so far i'm gonna add a little bit of a challenge to this and take andor off the table um, <laughs> and kind of just stick to the lord of the rings since that's kind of the meat of our discussion today yeah i i think this is gonna be weird right um i think it's gonna be really weird because of like how soul crushing um, and how kind of off piece from like the main thrust of this podcast it was. But but I think like in a really strange way, I'm kind of proud of all of the Rings of Power episodes um, because I think like, you know, my inability to be cheerful about fucking anything notwithstanding, like it was difficult material to cover in the way that we cover in the way like in the way that we had set the standard of covering material on this podcast like there really wasn't much to kind of dig into mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and and it was so aggressively cynical and so aggressively devoid of power meaning emotional significance narrative competency technical competency interest <laughs> the list goes on and on and like it was basically just being a hand at a plate of wonder bread and being like okay talk about this like you're on master chef um and and i think like against those kind of difficult odds um, and against the like feeling of uh, frustration with it. Like, I think we did actually end up churning out some kind of interesting podcast episodes and certainly the ones that I like, I go back to those show notes the most to like crib from things that like you had in the notes or that I had in the notes to use in later episodes. Like those are definitely kind of a goldmine in, in so many ways. Yeah. It was also, uh, a good time, like an, not a good time, but it was like an interesting time to be talking about the Rings of Power um, just because, uh, A, we had come off Kenobi, so I had a lot of pent up, <laughs> pent up anger about that. And since we pre-record episodes so far, those don't really seep in um, in the like early Two Towers episodes. Uh, and then also because we were watching like websites like fandom get bought out or buy other stuff <laughs> oh um, and God. we got to go off on how like fandom is the worst user experience on the web today um it was like it was nice to have you know an extended run of time where we could kind of talk about this show the rings of power which neither of us enjoyed but also in the context of everything else that was happening um because it is just like part of a general milieu of content slop that we're all living through. Um, and we can kind of piece together how it's all working, how the critical sphere is working in relation to the rings of power, um, which we were able to like really dive into. It also had the benefit of being up against house of the dragon, 
Um, I know you haven't quite gotten to it yet, but I would say it's a far, far superior show. I believe that. Um, and it's actually, actually good. <laughs> I think it's an actually good show. Um, and it definitely is a show that clearly learned something from, say, the weaker parts of Game of Thrones or the parts that people didn't really like from the end of its run. Um, they like worked on those things. They improved on it. Um, but then they kept all the other things that were good about the show in place. Um, so I think it was just able to hit the ground running. But of course... I think it's fair to say that Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, maybe with the nod to Harry Potter, are like the dominant fantasy IPs in these yeah. days. And I really hate calling it IP. <laughs> um, so being able to watch the difference between um, like how House of the Dragon was produced versus the Rings of Power, because to be fair, HBO was leveraging a lot of like economies of scale, I guess, because they had built out so much previously for the old show. Um, but seeing what people who actually like knew the material, wrestled with the material, getting George Martin involved versus just hiring two Mormons from <laughs> I, wherever they got them from. I think I'm Northern Virginia. High School. <laughs> um, and like without any kind of CV to their name, giving them half a billion dollars. And that's what they created. Um, at the best thing I could say about the show is that they knew what parts of the Lord of the Rings films to try to copy. <laughs> um, they did so unsuccessfully and without any meaning or poignancy, but they at least understood, yeah, this is probably a good shot. We should just lift it and put it meaninglessly into our own show. <laughs> um, I think that is going to go back or go down as one of our more interesting coverages when we look back on this stuff. And um, it's possible we have one to five more seasons of that shit. Oh so, my God. Uh, why? <laughs> oh, Lord knows. Um, Let's see, what's my answer for this? Um, I think the episode or the moment I'd really like to go back to is um, our last fellowship episode, or I guess our penultimate, uh, what's it called, episode, uh, the Boromir death episode, uh, the breaking of the fellowship. Um, because I think we had like a couple of our best conversations in that episode. Um, we talked about what it meant to see like boys crying on screen um, and how like nice that was in terms of a, you know, soft masculinity standpoint. Um, little did I know that the two towers would be filled with the one woman character crying all the way through. <laughs> I had never flagged that until we covered it. But um, and then we you also got into how our current notions of patriarchy of like the male and female gender roles um, were defined in like the industrial revolution in Britain and how that's kind of been passed down to, you know, Britain's son, America and into various <laughs> industries and how that kind of uh, mentality is still alive today and Protestant work ethic and all that. Um, we also got to talk about how, uh, the difference between adapting the book where you don't really see Boromir's death versus what you do see. And we talked about uh, violence in the margins or the silence between pages, between books, between chapters. I thought that was all good. Um, you got a chance to shit on the podcast name and say you didn't really like the quote. Uh, so it, it really had a little bit of something for everything, uh, for everyone. And it's also just like one of the best stretches of the Lord of the Rings material to cover, at least from the film standpoint. Amen. Um, so it's just like banger scene after banger scene after banger dialogue after banger moment. Um, so it kind of just makes our work easy. But I think that might have been the height of our coverage, at least to me so far. Okay, so this is interesting, right? Because I, I think obviously where we're going to next with this, but my, my immediate question is like, did you expect that one in advance to be a good bit of material to cover like were you like okay this is just going to be like when we get to this this is going to be one of the better ones or did you like not have any particularly strong thoughts on it in advance of it um 
I thought it would be a fun one just because I knew the podcast name comes up in the episode. <laughs> so I thought we would just kind of riff on that a lot. I knew at some point very early on, um, probably even before we really started this podcast, that there was going to be some point where we really got into that kind of tender masculinity stuff that I talked about in that episode. I didn't really have a point, like something pinned to that, like, oh, we're going to do it when this episode happens or when this episode happens. Um, and then it just kind of seemed to make sense to cover it there. It kind of just lined up with some of the other discussions we were having. It made a clear through line. And um, because it's not just Aragorn and Boromir, but also Sam and Frodo, you get kind of like that double whammy of male emotion. <laughs> uh, so I didn't really have it. Like I thought like our second Minds of Moria episode was going to be a banger. Um, and then I was just really looking forward to the Two Towers coverage because to me, the it's not necessarily the breaking of the fellowship, but the episode after that's going to be Gandalf falling through a volcano, fighting a fire demon. Um, <laughs> and that's the kind of shit I want to talk about. So I was almost looking past it in the moment of not really realizing what that episode would become. Nice. Okay. Okay. So with that in mind, um, what stretch of Return of the King are you like? Are you one most interested or like most looking forward to covering? And two, do you think we'll like pump out the best hashtag content? Okay, uh, I'll take the second one first. <laughs> um, I think the one that's going to pump out the best hashtag content is going to be um, where Denethor sends Faramir to retake <laughs> Osgilia. Um, I think the combination of memes with uh, Denethor eating the tomatoes, you're going to have takes about this depiction of Gondor, even if it is, you know, at least that section of it, similar to uh, the book. Um, I think I honestly don't have any idea. I usually give up on the book by that point. Um, I'm, ki I'm kidding. I'm making a joke. Uh, but I think that'll be someplace where we can really, really hash things out or talk things out in detail and in depth and really give you a chance to let your Gondor opinions fly. Um, a lot because even though Gondor is introduced into the two towers, um, we don't. I don't really count meeting Gondor until we go to Minas Tirith and meet Denethor, yep. um, especially how divorced Faramir and Asgiliath is from the book material that it's trying to adapt. Um, so it really doesn't feel like we really go to Gondor till the third movie. Um, and I know we get to it before that whole uh, charge and Pippin singing. Uh, Pippin singing's always fun. <laughs> I like Billy Boyd's vocals. Um, so it just, I feel like there's going to be a lot of meat on that episode. Um, a lot of tomatoes too, I assume. Uh, so uh, that's the one I would say I'm most looking forward to in terms of content. I think just the one I'm most looking forward to is like, oh, I just can't wait to talk about this. Uh, I think it's got to be the arrival of the Rohirrim at Pelennor Fields. Um, I feel like that, that and maybe everyone bowing to the hobbits at Minas Tirith <laughs> are like the two moments that get me as high as the highs I feel in the two towers, like with the last March of the Ants and stuff. Um, I feel like those two moments are the ones I'm looking most forward to. Nice. Nice. Yeah. See, those what are really about good. You? Well, like that's, this is the problem, right? Because like, I, I find Return of the King to be a slog. Um, I, it's like partially because I get mad about Gondor at the very start and then just stay mad the whole time. And then they just like pile on things afterwards that, that upset me, like the fucking fake Imrahel character, the blonde, blue-eyed Imrahel character that just makes me want to, like, burn New Zealand to the ground. Um, but, like, those are also kind of my high points. But, like, despite kind of being aggressively apathetic towards about with regards to The Hobbits, um, I think the thing that, like, I'm genuinely the most excited to cover 
um is is the is Mount Doom. Um is everything in Mount Doom. Um because every time I watch Return of the King, I spend like the first six hours of that movie, the theatrical edition of that movie, being like, oh my God, why have they done this to Dundathor? Why have they done this to Gondor? Why would anyone want to be king of a Gondor that is this shitty? What is Aragorn doing? Um, and then we get to uh, Mount Doom and I'm a bit like, oh, I'm just exhausted. And then I've got like four more endings to go through. And then it's like that performance that that, that Sean Astin um, and, and Elijah Wood pump out there, which is just like an all-timer great for me. Um, and every single time I watch that, it is like, being struck by lightning i'm suddenly or like it's like my adderall suddenly kicking kicking in i'm like oh my god okay now i have to pay attention to every single word every frame of this because this is just the best movies have ever been um and i'm really excited for that because i have like nothing but like cheerful nice thoughts about that and i think it'll be nice to get to something like that where i'm just gonna be like singing and skipping the way through that whole episode um, but for like the best hashtag content, um, I actually kind of think against the odds, it's going to be the, when we deal with the, um, well, the very shortened version in the theatrical edition, but where we deal with like the Umbarim, um, and the Corsairs and Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas coming out of the paths of the dead, um, and arriving at Pelargir, um, and, and sailing up Anduin. I think that is like, there's so much history rich history there there's so many interesting characterizations that they managed to fit into the movie there's so much like interesting background from the book um and there's also like pirates um which is a thing that we have not dealt with in in the lord of the rings thus far and like the pirate craze of the early 2000s um is something that i've kind of long waited to kind of sink our teeth into which i think we'll be able to do in some (laughs) interesting ways (laughs) once we get to that (laughs) Uh-huh. Uh let me let me quiz you here. Do you remember how much of the pirates is in the theatrical edition? It's really short, isn't it? Cuz it's like the in the theatrical edition, I feel like we cut from the paths of the dead to I think we don't even see them at Pelargir. Exactly. And then they um, just cut to like Harland, right? Mhm. Mhm. Uh that basically the only time we actually see the pirates, and I think one of them is Peter Jackson. Am I wrong mm-hmm. in that? Um, yep, sure is. But the only time we see them is um, in the theatrical edition. That is, is when they're at Meduseld after Pippin looked into the Palantir, and Gandalf is telling you must come to Minas Tirith by another route, um, and then he says like corsairs from umbar are sailing and then they just have an establishing shot of just showing some boats with peter jackson walking in <laughs> um and then in the theatrical edition it's just um the pass of the dead and then the, aragorn literally disappears from the movie for an hour um <laughs> until um he just pops out of the boat at um what's it called at a or wherever you said it was maybe it's not a harland um, but yeah i think they basically just make it all Skiliath in the movie all of gondor is the yeah, same which is yeah, it's it's all one place. Uh, so, um, so like there, it really isn't any of that. So another another point towards maybe the theatrical editions. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, but yes. Yeah, so, uh, so that so that that will be interesting to talk about. Um, I guess I'm thinking about this now. Uh, we we would both say Return of the King is our least favorite yeah. of our three of these three movies. Yeah. yeah. Um, despite my two towers propaganda, I do think Fellowship is the best like actual movie of the three. Yeah. Um, I just like the two towers more and I not, you know, shy to admit it. Um, I don't think return of the King is 
even mediocre. I, th- I still think it's like a great movie, yeah. but it's kind of got like a drop off to me. And I'm sorry, this might not be an accessible analogy to you, Emily, but kind of like the Dark Knight Rises versus Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, those first two Nolan Batmans, which I really like. Um, and then the third one, I'm like, there's so many cool things in here, but it still just doesn't totally work for me. Mm. Um uh, and I, uh, Return of the King still works for me, but I just wanted to avoid using the Star Wars originally tr- original trilogy <laughs> as a metaphor here because I think everyone does that. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, I think a lot of our listeners think Return of the King is the best. Um, and I think it's some of that Return of the Jedi logic where it's just like you get the resolution and payoff for things that you've been waiting for sometimes for six hours at this point or nine hours. And most of um, them in that movie. <laughs> absolutely. So... Um, so yeah, I think it'll be interesting because I definitely think they're high points. I think like the Shilob scenes, both of them, Frodo and Shilob and Sam and Shilob are both incredible. Yep. Um so I'm going to be I'm going to be skipping and singing during those episodes. <laughs> um what I'll be singing, I don't know. Um but we'll probably do a fun uh what's it called? bonus episode about the spiders of Middle-earth. What's Shilob's mom? Ungoliant. Ungoliath. Okay. I've only seen it written and I was going to say like Ungoliath or something. <laughs> uh, so I did, I really did not want to mispronounce it uh, the first time saying it, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Like you said, there's a lot of lulls in Return of the King because they keep kind of building up to stuff. Um, so really until you have like Faramir abandoning Gusgiliath the first time and Gandalf riding out and shining the flashlight on the Nazgul and stuff, <laughs> um, there isn't too much like action going on it's a lot of people moving between places and talking yeah which isn't bad you know i love i love that um but there is kind of a lull whereas kind of two towers especially because it kind of just starts you off right away with that gandalf balrog stuff kind of feels like it's just running the entire time whereas it feels like the return of the king is kind of pacing itself and maybe it has to because it's three and a half hours yeah. but it feels like it kind of starts off at more of a saunter or a jog um and then really about 30 to 40 minutes into the movies really when you hit the ground running yeah well and i, I also kind of wonder right because like i feel like my <laughs> tolerance towards some of the choices in two towers has like shifted dramatically because of the things that were coming out um while we were covering it and i'm kind of like in a sick way, I'm kind of excited to see like what other dog shit comes out between here and when we get around to finishing Return of the King. Because like I feel like Andor, right, noted high point, noted high point certainly for me of TV for the last twenty years. Um, everything else, just digging, digging, limbo dancing in hell with the devil to try and get beneath the bar. Um, like this new season of The Mandalorian, I think is just a joke on so many levels. And like, I really didn't think that Star Wars could get could get worse than the the <laughs> level set before Andor. Um, and so like, I'm kind of interested to see like where it all goes from here because like there is a chance i will start returning the king being like this shit sucks this is painful um there are some moments that are great but so much of it is just a slog and a and a very good chance that i will end it by being like this is the best movie ever if anybody says a word against it i will kill you all um and cinema has never um been better than this there's there's there no no it's nothing wrong um because by comparison everything else will just be like so much worse and, and i do feel like there's kind of a uh, a universal not universal studios but like a universal production schedule floating around out there that is just like a list of things that are going to be bad from here <laughs> for the next couple of years and and like i'm kind of excited in some ways to see what those 
those movies and TV shows will actually be like and how much more tolerance they're going to build in for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to, you know, give some optimism to our listeners, I don't think we're going to be like down, down on Return of the King. No. Um, I think we still generally very much like the movie. It is Billy um, Boyd's finest work. He is a hero in that. Yeah, yeah. Billy Boyd and uh, Son- Sean Ashton. Again, oh. we talked about how the third movie is really Sam's movie. Um, so there's like a lot to love. And I, I think Ian McKellen, that might, it's up there. I can't say if it's better or worse than Fellowship, but he definitely oh, has he's so good a idea. lot of ma- a lot of material. And it's he's so great, um, especially a lot of it off of Billy Boyd. I think part of the reason um, the Gondor stuff, sorry, Emily, <laughs> is strong in Return of the King is just because that's where Billy Boyd and Ian McKellen are yep. um, for most of the time. And um, that's a lot more interesting than Aragorn going down the Pass of the Dead. Um, <laughs> yes, so, that is correct. At, le- at least to me it is. Yep. Um, and it's hard for me to like slag the Legolas plotline in a movie. But um, <laughs> another reason uh, Return of the King is my least favorite is Legolas does the least amount of sicko shit in that movie. <laughs> he He's allowed one sicko shit and it's, Totally sicko shit, but it's oh, yeah. I like the like splattering of it that we get in Fellowship and Return of the King or Two Towers rather, um, not just one dessert at the end of the meal. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, is there anything else since we're kind of just free wheeling and dealing in this conversation? <laughs> anything else you want to talk about, Lord of the Rings wise, or anything else you've enjoyed? Um, I guess my not enjoyed. Oh. If you want to shit on The Last of Us, you know, feel free. I, I should hold myself in check because I realize a lot of people. I, I was kind of of the assumption that like the universal opinion was that show sucked ass. And then I've only recently realized because I've been quite busy at work and so not on socials that much. I've only recently realized how well liked that is. And I've been like, oh my God, okay, maybe I need to shut up about this. Um, so I won't do that. But um, one of my kind of questions is right. So we joke about dreading The Hobbit. Um, and. Now, the important context for this is I have not watched the Hobbit movies in a while and was very inebriated the last time I did, so I don't fully remember how painful they are. But like, uh, he- like it towards this elusive future concept of having to cover the Hobbit. Um, how like how are you feeling about that as a general vibe? Like with regard to the Lord of the Rings, like do you think that like, um. Do you think that like it will be a thing that is like as interesting and kind of meaty to to kind of delve into eventually? Or do you think that you're kind of like grouping it into a lot of these other kind of shittier things where it's like, okay, like we'll do it, but we're not going to like give it as much sort of like not respect, but like as much sort of like laxity, leeway, reverence, I guess, as the Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Oh, man, that's going to be interesting because. Um, I don't want to say I liked the first Hobbit movie when I got out of it. I think it was more of kind of like a bargaining thing I was doing with myself. <laughs> like, I liked it. Um, and I would say it was very similar to me with the Star Wars prequels. Um, I actually did come out of The Phantom Menace like, oh, yeah, I thought that was cool. Um, I was also like 16 years old or whatever <laughs> and didn't know what cool was. But you know, there were, you know, as I like kind of separated myself from seeing as like, yeah, that wasn't that good. And then I don't think time has been any kinder to it, especially just some of the frame rate and visual stuff. And, um, I think a big thing for me, and it's a simple thing. It's just the orcs being CGI and not these wonderful costumes Mm -hmm. just really dampens me on it. That said, I think there's a lot of stuff we can still talk about. And, because I am not the legendarium expert here, that is you. I'm hoping some of the like 
superfluous stuff that Jackson roped into his Hobbit trilogy will just make a good springboard into talking about other parts of the Legendarium. Yeah. Um, and like, hopefully like, okay, maybe this movie sucks or this set of scenes we're going to talk about sucks. And I promise you, we're going to cover the hobbits in much bigger segments than we're doing oh the Lord God, of the yes. Rings. Um, I, I think I would rather just like, Hey, let's fuck talking about these movies, but this is the idea that Jackson tried to work into here. Or this is the history that he's referring to with this like dialogue. Um, what, what can we talk about it divorced from the movies is what I think is the best. Um, uh, I'm also kind of split on whether we should spoil that we might do something before we do the Hobbit movies. Da, da, da. Uh, <laughs> do you hear the people? <laughs> oh my God. We have to sing all of it. We we are going to sing all of it and it is going to be awful. Um, yeah, we might, we, we might do a little Les Mis thing, um, after, uh, Return of the King. We haven't finalized anything though. I think me and Emily are both about it, about it. Um, and also that. I I don't think we're competing against a lot of other podcasts if we decide to do a famous <laughs> podcast, uh, which is, you know, kind of attractive. But um, I also will promise you if we do do Miz, we'll cover The Fugitive as part of it. Oh, my God. Huh, um, yeah. I also um, this will be interesting because we haven't recorded uh, our Patreon episode about uh, the South Park episode on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, but uh, Les Mis was a huge influence for the first South Park movie, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Jesus Christ. Um, so it might be fun to talk about that as part of that oh as my well. God. But, oh my God, it's actually um, going to kill me. <laughs> it, it, it might, it might. Um, but yeah, I guess that's enough of a fun tease for now. Uh Anything else you want to say before we go to our closer stuff? It's funny because I think I've actually kind of perversely almost nagged myself into being really excited to do some of the Hobbit stuff in bigger chunks, in bigger chunks, oh my god, in bigger chunks. But, like, there is something so fucking goofy and ridiculous and just, like, shitty about those movies that I think it's almost freeing in some ways. Um, And, like, I think, you know, there's also something like, you know, I spent a lot of my teenage years, a lot of my teenage years being obsessed with Lee Pace. And so, like, there's something kind of nice about the potential of getting to return to that and be, like, freed of needing to be like, actually, this is still good because it's just not. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of fun in, in, in a lot of ways. But I also think it's going to be really fun because... Um, because I think like that used to be the floor for Lord of the Rings stuff. Like that used to be really like that used to be what the worst of it was. And now it's not the worst of it at all. It's actually like basically middling tier um, by sheer number of hours. Um, and so I think it's going to be really fun to look at it in that, like with that new vision of it. Um, and, and, you know, not necessarily more generous vision, but like, oh my God, wow, this is just like, this is not even as bad as it could have gotten. Um, and that will end a, uh, an interesting an interesting vibe to it i guess <laughs> yeah um, i didn't really think about it but there's about as much rings of power as there is hobbit trilogy uh-huh. um so uh and if you if you put a gun to my head and said rewatch one i'm picking the hobbit yep, movies absolutely. Uh, without without a doubt and um I, I will come to the defense of little things here and there in the first two movies. I hate the third movie. It might be the worst thing I've ever seen, yep. um, at least until I saw The Rings of Power. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like that's not even a question for me. So I think the Hobbit movies will be fun. Maybe we'll change up our approach a little bit. Uh, maybe instead of just doing chunks, we'll just be like, we, hey, we'll just talk about Thandruil this entire episode Hell and yes. just talk about Lee Pace. Mm, and, yes. Um, that'll be a very positive episode, I would He's say. He's perfect. Give him a career. If you are listening, movie execs, cast Lee Pace and things that don't suck. 
And don't bury him in makeup either. God. So before we sign off today, we would like to thank some of our patrons. Just a reminder, if you sign up at the $5 and $10 levels, we will read your name on air uh, on a rotating basis for our $5 patrons and every episode for our $10 patrons. So, Emily, do you want to take this first one? Yes. First off, we'd like to thank Lothaman of Palinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Thanks to Silent Spider, the Guardian of Kirith Ungol, a.k.a. Ed the Revelator. And Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Ithranar of Kokorthad. Uh, Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranro Minyatar. <laughs> and Lyco Melma, also known as Zag Newman. Sal Quendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Tolkona Tanar, also known as Jonathan Dahan. Eruanian Taranen, a.k.a. Matthias Henson. Nailed it. Ronessa, also yes. known as Mick Smith. And Penemel, a.k.a. Munjil. And for the $5 patrons, we would like to thank Ariel Scotton, a.k.a. Revaliel of Arabost. And Evan Tuseem Grip, a.k.a. Ananor of Glanamin. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycapmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes as well as Patreon-exclusive bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be using deepfakes to make Tommy Lee Jones sing stars from Javert and Lemus. Has he done that? Because <laughs> uh, he seems like, oh, never mind. I got the joke. I am smart. I understand where you're going with it. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, <laughs> a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.